I love this message. I'm going to preach only because of what we just now did. Um, it's pretty appropriate and timely to, to preach a Pentecost message on the day that we bring in new members into the church. Um, if you didn't pay attention in class, you're not going to find out exactly what you all got yourself into. So, right. This morning what I'd like to do is I'd like to challenge, not, nah, not really challenge, I'd like to expand, expand our understanding of Pentecost. Right? More specifically, I want to expand or challenge our understanding of, of the relationship between the Holy Spirit or pneuma, what we're calling today's uh, sermon, uh, the breath of God, the Spirit of God or the breath of God, um, and, and how Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in Pentecost relates to what happened 50 days ago, 50 days earlier, the cross and the resurrection, and actually what happened 30 years even before that, the birth of Christ. So we've got this idea for a lot of people, the incarnation, the cross, the resurrection, the Pentecost are these four separate unrelated events. Some might even see that the middle two events, the cross and the resurrection, are inextricably linked. But in most of our minds, we don't link the incarnation and Pentecost to the cross and the resurrection. But I want to present to you this morning, I just kind of want to expand our understanding of Pentecost, and, and, and hopefully you will arrive at this point where you'll see that, that the incarnation, the cross, the resurrection, and Pentecost are all tightly related. They are separate events, but they are tightly related. Together, they're known as the atonement, right? This is God's effort to be at one-ment with us. Traditionally, we just think the cross and the resurrection, right? That, that's the atonement, but what I want to do this morning, I want to expand that understanding to include not only his birth and his life and his teachings, but also Pentecost, 50 days after the cross and the resurrection. So what I'd like to do, I'd like to carefully suggest to you, very, very, very carefully suggest to you, so don't jump up and start yelling right away. Your salvation isn't complete with just the cross and the resurrection. Hold on a second. By complete, I don't mean that without the Pentecost experience, you're somehow not saved. That's not what I'm talking about. It simply means that without Pentecost, your salvation experience is not everything that God intended it to be. Right? He's totally happy that you gave your life to him. Right? He loves that. But there's something I think as I read through Scripture that I think it bothers the heart of God because I see the evidence all through Scripture is that people that separate themselves from the body of Christ, these individual Christians... They kind of feel like, well, I'm saved, the cross, the resurrection, I'm all, and, and I'm good. Church is optional. According to God's word, church isn't optional. It is the culminating, the concluding activity of his atoning activities. What we celebrate this morning, everything, everything all piles into this morning. Every, everything. The thief next to Jesus, he only experienced, right, the, the, the incarnation, the life and teaching of Jesus, um, and the cross, right? He wasn't around for the resurrection. He wasn't around, obviously, for Pentecost, but Christ told him his salvation was, essentially, his salvation was complete. So again, I don't want you to hear, when I say the word complete, what I mean to say really is f fullness of salvation. I think that's the right word we want to use. A fullness of salvation must include Pentecost. It must include Pentecost. Um, now, I'm only calling, I, I, I'm, I'm going to, these, these four moments in the Bible, these four movements, I'm going to call them uh, atonement movements, atonement moments, the incarnation, the cross, the resurrection, and then today, Pentecost Sunday. Um, but I'm only calling them that because Scott McKnight called them that in a book called A Community Called Atonement. It's an incredible book. I've been working my way through it uh, like 
four months now. It's one of those books where if I, I, I start reading it and then I quickly realize I don't even know what I'm reading, so I gotta go read like a primer book to help me understand where Scott McKnight is trying to get me to be. And so I've, I'm, I'm like halfway through it, but it's blowing my mind. And I wanna share a little bit of what Scott McKnight has shared with me in this book, a community called Atonement. And again, he, he, he outlines four atoning moments, the incarnation, the cross, the resurrection, and Pentecost. And again, in, in most of us, we see these as four completely separate events. They're related kind of because they all have to do with Jesus and they're all in the Bible, right? But, but, but what I want to show you this morning is they're far, far more intimately related than I think we ever thought. Um, they, they, they have to hang together. It's kind of like people will tell me, oh, well, I'm a four-point or a three-point Calvinist, and I, as I understand the situation, that's impossible, right? You dump one point, you have to dump all the points. This is true with here. Atonement, your, God's effort to bring you at one with him involves these four steps, and they can't be dumped. You can't pick and choose. Really, for the fullness of your salvation, all four are absolutely, absolutely crucial. So, uh, we rightfully call Pentecost the birth of the church, but as we're going to see, it's so, so much more than simply the birth of the church. So, I'd like to quickly review the first three movements of the atonement and then kind of major this morning on Pentecost because it is Pentecost Sunday. Um, because they are separate, but they're all related, right? They are related. And I'll be suggesting that what these new members just experienced and what they're now going to experience is this culminating activity of God, this culminating atonement activity movement of God, and, and that is uh, Pentecost. They join the church. And for some of us, eh, no big deal. It is a big deal. It's a huge deal. I want to show you this morning. The whole goal, destination, the direction of the incarnation, the cross, and the resurrection is Pentecost Sunday. This is where God wanted all of those activities to culminate. I want to start with the first atoning moment, the incarnation. God became what we are so that we might become what he is. In the incarnation, and when I say the incarnation, I don't just mean the birth of Christ. The incarnated Christ is the only, the entire time that he was in the flesh. So when I say from here on out this morning, when I say the incarnation, talking the birth, the life, and teachings of Jesus Christ, the whole, not just the birth. All right, kind of clarify that. Um, he identifies us with the, the incarnation. Christ came to live amongst us. Without the identification of the incarnation, there is no at-one-ment. There is no atonement. God chooses to identify with, with us in the incarnation so that we mar, par, might participate with him in the triune life, in the God life. So he invades our life so that we can be a part of his life. This is the incarnation. This is a quote, God became what we are so that we might become what he is by two early church fathers. I don't know which one of them said it. They're both quoted, Arrhenius and Athanasius. Um, they're reflective of both Peter and Paul's writings. Let me just show you a couple scriptures here. First from 2 Peter chapter 1. It starts in verse 3. It says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. That's, that's a long, you know, I kind of looked at that passage several different times, and I looked at Eugene Peterson's way of saying it. Just let me say this. Everything that goes into a life of pleasing God has been miraculously given to us by getting to know personally and intimately the one who invited us to God. Kind of a little paraphrase there. Everything we need to know, everything we need to do, everything we need to be as it relates to pleasing God comes from knowing Jesus. 
Additionally, and more to our point, verse 4 says this, through, though, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises. We'll come back to that in a second. So that through them you may participate in the divine nature. That's the whole goal of everything. The incarnation, the cross, the resurrection, and finally Pentecost is that we can participate in the God life, that we can be a part of the perichoresis, the dance. The triune God invites us into to participate in their life. having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. Through the life of Jesus, these precious promises of the Old Testament prophets would be fulfilled. And what are these precious promises that when fulfilled in Christ will lead us to this very God life, into the, the triune God, the, the life that they enjoy, right? What are these promises that this, built, this hope is built on? Um, the Apostle Paul spells this out in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at this. I'm going to start in verse 16. And there's a whole conversation going on before this that's really not pertinent to the discussion. But as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is from the prophets. This is repeated several times in different ways from Ezekiel, um, Isaiah, even in Leviticus. The, the, these lines are repeated over and over again. And then in verse 18, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Almighty, the Lord Almighty. So the cross and the resurrection are hugely important, but understand that the atonement, God's gracious movement to include us in the God life, began with the birth, life, and teaching of Jesus. It didn't begin at the cross. It didn't begin at the resurrection. It began at the birth when God decided, I will be a part of you so that you can be a part of me, so that we can be one. So it starts with the atonement, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The second and third atoning moments are far better understood by most. I'm going to kind of go through them quickly, but they definitely bear repeating. The second atoning moment at the cross, the slates are wiped clean. It's the elimination of the sin problem, right? Bam, on that second atoning moment, our sin issue is taken care of. Everything that we feared about death, right? That's the sting of death that Paul talks about in Thessalonians it gets removed, Right? We don't need to fear death anymore because sin has been taken care of. We don't have to fear punishment. We don't have to any of that. It's been the sting has been removed from death. I, I just I love that idea. And how the sin problem is dealt with exactly has been the discussion and debate since the early days of Christianity. Was it substitutionary? Was it penal substitutionary? Was it the satisfaction theory? Was it recapitulation? Christus Victor? Moral? I mean, there's a whole bunch of theories. Now, the problem with all these theories about the atonement is they all tend to focus on just the cross. But as I'm trying to point out that Scott McKnight is showing us we can't just zero in on the cross. It's the whole life and experience of Jesus Christ from his birth all the way to the gifting of his Holy Spirit at Pentecost that we need to look at. Well, regardless of all those theories, um, it worked. All right, we'll save that one for another message. Um, but we still have a problem. So our, sin, our sins have been forgiven, but here's the issue. What's to stop us from going out tomorrow or even later today as soon as I release you and sinning again? Right? We're not, we, we didn't get a leg up on sin. We got forgiven for what we've done, but nothing's changed in us. What makes you think that suddenly after my sins have been forgiven that tomorrow I'm going to be this wonderful new creature that doesn't do any of the stupid things that I so love to do? That's silly. Right? That's just silly. You all know that. Right? 
So any theory of the atonement must not only rid us of the sin problem, but it's also got to transform our life and it's got to transform the world. That's the only way it's going to make a difference. Otherwise, we're going to be stuck in the old Israel situation. Wherever, every time we sin, the animal, we bring the animal, and tomorrow we're going to bring another animal. And the next day, we're going to bring another animal, and it will never stop. We will never get a leg up on sin. But in Jesus Christ, we get a leg up on sin. We get victory. We get new life, new life. If the death of Christ wipes away the sin, then the resurrection of Christ makes all things new. And this is the third atoning movement or moment. In the resurrection, all things are made new. The atonement is not only the elimination of the sin problem, it's the enablement of new life. The resurrection creates new life in the here and now as well as the then and there. And that transformation is already taking place in those who are in Christ. And because of this, the resurrection gives a person hope and a new life. Paul writes it like this. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, that God was inviting the entire world into his life, into his world, into his heavenly realm. He has invited us all into this place, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the same message of reconciliation. So those are the middle two we know pretty much about. Now, the final atoning moment is Pentecost, the event that's often overlooked in the theories of the atonement. This is where we want to jump in today. Pentecost is the creation of a community of faith by which broken humanity will be restored to the union with God and others for the good of the world. That's kind of an encapsulating kind of statement. I kind of want to break it down now into like four little parts, um, kind of flesh out the statement. Um, the first theme that I kind of want to flesh out is the creation of a new covenant befitting the new creation community introduced by Jesus. This new covenant is going to be radically different than the old covenant. The old covenant was written on stone. It was very external. It was very breakable. Not just the stone, but if you broke the rule, you broke the rule. Right? That's just all there was to it. Almost immediately, if not a bit after following the Pentecost experience, people began to connect the dots. Right? They begin to think back, you know, man, last time I was in temple, that old priest was talking about Jeremiah I think we just experienced what Jeremiah was talking about, this Pentecost Sunday experience in Acts chapter 2, these flames, this roaring wind. I, 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 think, we're, I think we're it. We're, we're, here, here's, here's what he says. This is Jeremiah chapter 31. The days are coming, and again, the people in the experience of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, they experience all this. They know their scripture, and you, most scholars, they, they think the, the, the people in that room, they had to be thinking back, oh, my goodness, this is Jeremiah. This is, this is prophecy being revealed today. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. 
And so everybody, everybody on that day of Pentecost, they, they heard this. They, they, they understood this. They, they remember the, pro, the prophet Ezekiel and, and, and in Leviticus and, and all these lines being uttered and all these promises being spoken of by the prophets. And then in Jesus Christ, he says, all of them are going to come true in me. And if you believe in me and you participate in my life, you too. You too. It would eventually dawn on them that they were the new people of God. They were part of the restoration of Israel that the prophets had been talking about all these years. It was finally happening. The old covenant that Israel had broken was being renewed in a miraculous and radical, radically different way by the gift of the Spirit. They were the recreation of a new people of God on whose hearts the new covenant was written. The Spirit of God was working to restore and renew people. And, and this is, again, this, this is where it all, this is why he was restoring people, well, one step in restoring people, so that we could recreate a community of faith. Individuals gathered together in a community of faith. And, and again, unity isn't really the goal. It's the way we will actually reach the goal. When we have perfect unity, then our message is believed. That's the goal. Not that we'd all come together and give people high fives and, oh, everybody was friendly to me today. Oh, I love that church. But is this the church reaching the lost? Right? Being friendly, that's, that's a great thing, but do we accept the lost? Are we recreating heaven? I mean, th that's what we're doing here. We're not cre recreating the garden. You just want to make sure you're aware of that. We're not recreating the garden. We're recreating heaven. Right? We're not going backwards. We're going forward here. creating a new creation, a new community. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit poured out in order to create a universal community of faith that worships, fellowships, and missionally expands. This is what we do. We don't just gather and sit and listen to Pastor Jerry. We kind of do it. That's what we do also. But we fellowship and we expand the mission of God. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit creates a new community of faith in which the will of God manifests itself in worship, fellowship, and the mission of God. And it's in this new community of faith that we find God's divine intention for the incarnation, the cross, and the resurrection. This is the intention. This is where everything was going, that this body would be created, that would go out and spread the gospel, that would tell Jesus, tell people about Jesus, that would invite people into a new, different kind of community than they're living in out there that's somewhat cutthroat. That they would look inside here and, wow, they treat each other well. Even in the midst of all these crazy times, they speak respectfully toward each other. They do things differently in that community. And that's what we were meant to be. That was the whole point of Pentecost is that people would look at us and go, we want to be a part of that. Whoever's their king, we want that to be our king. This is the power of Pentecost. As I said earlier, it will be in and through the new community of faith that we will be restored to union with God and to communion with others for the good of the world. And this new community of faith, I just want you to be aware, this is kind of a two-edged sword. Okay? Pentecost is both justification and judgment. The community of faith is only possible because God has justified us. So that's the justification part. We have been justified by the blood of Christ. Now, here's the judgment part. The way we live, the rest of the world is going to look at us and a judgment will take place. They will look at the way they're doing things, and they literally, they'll judge themselves. Wow, we're making a mess of things. 
When I see that community at work and compare it to my community, judgment, my community is mean, <laughs> it's not gracious, but that community, man, that, that's the judgment. So we got justification and judgment. And by this new community of faith, this new community of faith also serves as God's judgment on this corrupt and evil world. A third theme that we find, a third theme that we find at Pentecost dealing with the atonement is the expanding of the new creation, the new community. Right? Pentecost is all about the Spirit's power to transcend, to break down barriers, and to expand the new people of God. Acts chapter 1 through 15. This is your homework. Kind of pile through that in the next couple of weeks. And what you'll read about is this is incredible expansion of, by the Holy Spirit of the, the message of Christ. And it was an expansion beyond any expectations. I mean, they, they could not have conceived that this, this expansion would happen like this. It was reaching people groups that they <laughs> never expected to be a part of this thing. Never expected. And I know it was difficult. It was incredibly, it was a painful process filled with meetings and councils and compromises Compromises, but this is what it takes. This is, how, this is the way the body operates. If you walk into a body thinking, oh, I'm just going to walk in and everyone's just going to be wonderful. No, you walk in and you become a part of a working body that's working toward unity. It didn't come naturally. You all know that. It takes a whole lot of swallowing our pride, eating crow, being loving to people who we know are idiots and they're wrong, but that, that's what we do. We, we love each other. That was a mean way of saying it. Again, it's easy to read these chapters and include, wow, just one quick effortless endeavor. I mean, they just kind of plow through chapters 1 through 15. It's like, wow, how come my church isn't growing like that? But then you kind of dig in the years. This, this happened over many, couple, several decades. This was a long um, process. But again, this is what it takes. N.T. Wright says this, God doesn't give the Holy Spirit in order to enjoy the spiritual equivalent of a day at Disneyland. He says, the point of the Spirit is to enable those who follow Jesus to take into the world the news that he is Lord, that he has won the victory over the forces of evil, that a new world has opened up and that we are to help make it happen. Final atonement theme found at Pentecost is the empowering of this new creation, this new community. The Spirit that empowers individual saints is the exact same Spirit that makes them a fellowshipping body, makes us a fellowshipping body. Immediately our thoughts go to Paul's powerful image of the Christians being body parts who need each other in order to function, right? They cannot function without each other so that the redemptive work of Christ, of God, can be accomplished. This is what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, and so to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. For Paul, the unity of the body was the new creation itself. And the Holy Spirit responsible for that unity is the same spirit responsible for empowering this new creation, this new people group, this new community. It's the same same exact spirit that's going to give us the power to change this community. To sum up, Pentecost empowers all to be restored in all four directions, God, self, others, and with the world. Pentecost crystallizes God's atoning work. Individually, you know, God's spirit draws each of us to himself. We, we recognize that. 
But the tool of his choosing for this purpose, more than likely the tool that drew you, if you get back and start thinking about it, they were a member of a church, and they were doing the work of that church, and they had a conversation with you one day, and you listened. And I don't know the details of the story, but that's my story. Some guy from a church got a hold of me and made a difference. He was doing the work of his church. The church is the destination chosen by God for each new believer to work out their salvation. And these six people that we prayed for this morning, they're now, they've already begun, but now it's going to begin in earnest to work out their salvation. And all this stuff that we're talking about, they're going to have tons of questions about. They're going to kind of remember a sermon or two, barely, but they're going to ask you, what did pastor say about this? What did pastor say about this? And you're going to need to answer them. You're their co-students. We're all co-students, really, in this together. I want to close with this idea. Acts 2 describes what seem to be tongues of fire resting above each and every person in the room. My prayer for us this morning is that collectively, collectively, that in all that we say and do, that our tongues would also be on fire for God. Our ministries would be tongues of fire. The work at Carmichael Middle School, that we would be tongues of fire. No hesitation, no fear. Would you all bow your heads? Father, we thank you for this church. We thank you for every church across the land that that according to the instructions of your Holy Spirit to that specific church, they're doing their part in spreading the gospel. And so, Father, we, we, we pray for your power of your Spirit over this local body right here that we would be able to do our part, that we wouldn't shrink away from what needs to be done here in the Tri-Cities. Father, you've given us everything that we need, absolutely everything. We just need to step out on faith now and trust you. Father, may it be so. In your son's name I pray. Amen.